Uh, today, Lord willing, we want to look at verses 13 to 21. We'll read that in just a moment. All right, everybody good? Matthew th- uh, chapter 14. Matthew 14. Let me begin by uh, giving a little bit of context, okay? Uh, and this, this will matter. So I hope, and, uh, I know the kids are leaving, and, but even now as you're finding that passage, I hope that the Lord will really help you to, I just like seeing you sitting there, Sean. I'm, I'm sitting sit down, man. You just, I just like seeing you. you, you you're encouraging. Uh, anyway, I like seeing all of you. I should not do that because now I've got to go here and say, I really like seeing you and you. And, anyway, uh, all right. What was I saying? All right. Here's the setting. All right. Jesus, what, I, I should have a map, but you're going to have to use your imagination. Remember, there's this Sea of Galilee up in North Palestine. Down south is the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows into the top of the Sea of Galilee, comes out the bottom of it, then flows down into the Dead Sea. Jesus focuses his ministry on what would be the western side, but just very close to the inlet of the Jordan, Capernaum. He has recently left this city that's his home base. He went inland, Galilee, to his hometown of Nazareth, but he was rejected. Remember that? He was rejected. They didn't want him. He did did only a few miracles, taught in their synagogue. They rejected him, Don't, don't like him. We want a different Messiah in Christ, so they reject him. Here's what you're not going to see in our text. Jesus has just recently, since that rejection, sent out his 12 disciples in groups of two, and they've gone on ministry. And so that's coming into play with what we're about to read and what we studied last week. So if you, if you missed last week, you're kind of at a little disadvantage. Um, we won't be able to go back and recap it all, but John the Baptist is killed by Herod, has him beheaded, because Herod's wife, Herodias, who's also his sister-in-law and his niece, it's really twisted. He has John the Baptist beheaded, and that's what leads into our text here. But as we'll see in a minute, there's, there's several dynamics that are not clear in Matthew because we have four Gospels, and I've had the advantage this week. I got to study all four Gospels. Not really study. I got to read each of the four Gospels, but focus on this one. Matthew is very condensed. So what we're about to read is not going to have all of the things at play, all of the pieces of information. I'll refer to a few things without turning to the other Gospels. Uh, But one was that his disciples have just been sent. Matthew's already dealt with that earlier in a theme. I think it was chapter 10. Now, we're going to see in a little bit, they're coming back. About the same time, he's getting some news. So we think Jesus is again in Capernaum very near where the Jordan River comes in, and you're going to see some movement just to the other side of the Jordan River. He'll go by boat, but you'll see what happens with these crowds. So before we read the text, most of you have your Bible open and you have the handout. You're already noticing, oh, this is where Jesus feeds the 5,000 males. Really, we're probably talking about 10 to 20,000 people. Um, First note I want you to take before we look at our text is this one. What's unique about these verses in Matthew is that this miracle, along with Jesus' resurrection, let that sink in, those are the only two miracles of Jesus that are recorded in all four Gospels. So that tells me right off the bat, all four Gospels write about this, all four Gospels write about Jesus' resurrection. Some of the other great miracles are not touched on by the other Gospel writers. So 
We don't want to put any passage of Scripture above another, but the Lord wants us to definitely get what this passage says. Again, elite company in what we're about to read. And with that in mind, you have your Bible open on your tablet, your phone, whatever it may be. Verse 13. Here's our text. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. Pause right there. Hear that. Just soak in that for a second. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew. Jesus is going to hear something, and his reaction is to withdraw, to kind of take a retreat. We're going to come back and see what this is, because it could be multiple things that are happening, and I believe there are multiple dynamics. Here we go again. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Matthew says by himself. By himself here doesn't mean all by himself. He's the only guy in the boat. The other gospels, what it means is away from the crowds. He's leaving the crowds because he's heard something. The other gospels tell us that the disciples are getting back and they're going to go with him on these boats also to a desolate place. So here we go again. I'm going to go faster now. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, when the crowds heard it, somehow there's a leak. Somehow it gets out, not just, hey, where's he going? Somebody heard where he's going. And again, the other texts make it clear that they're going to get there first. You see it hinted at here. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Do you see it already? Watch. Jesus hears something. He's over here at Capernaum. His reaction is, we're going to go over to the, another location, more desolate. I think it was Luke tells us the name of the place was Bethsaida. Well, we know where that is. That's just on the other side of the Jordan River. So somebody, how it gets leaked, but before Jesus and his disciples can get over there and hit land, some people have already walked around by foot, somehow crossed the Jordan River, and they're starting already accumulating a crowd. And no doubt, as they're approaching here, the crowd's growing more and more. When he went ashore, verse 14, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them he had compassion on them and healed their sick he's a lot better than me now when it was evening so he's healing the other gospels tell us he's teaching about the kingdom here we go again he left to get away from the crowds he gets there hits shore and there's thousands again now when it was evening that word evening can really be anywhere from like 3 p.m to 9 p.m Probably the idea of late afternoon, probably not the sunset just yet because of what happens in verses 22 and 23. That's going to be even a little bit further evening. So this is late afternoon, what they would still call evening, verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples, again, he's been ministering, and they're ministering. The disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Like, the day's getting away from us. We've been at it for a while Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Translation. These people are going to need to eat, Lord. You need to just disperse this crowd, send them into the villages so they can go buy food for themselves. Catch verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. 
They don't need to go away. Oh, they're going to need to eat supper, Lord. Yeah, they don't need to go away. <laughs> and then he says, you give them something to eat. They need not go. We got everything we need right here. You boys give them something to eat. What? Again, I wish we had time to go read the others because they have some natural reaction. They want to, how much does it cost to buy food for this group? And they go into all these things. Eventually, they send out a search and they discover the information in verse 17. They said to him, again, after a search, they found a little boy. You know about the little boy. Praise the Lord. He gave his lunch to the Lord to be used, and the Lord uses it. But in their minds, this crowd needs to eat. You give them something to eat. So verse 17, they said, the disciples said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Like, just picture something maybe just like that thick, just a little loaf. We only have like little, this little boy just had five little, like pita bread. We only have five of those and like two little fish, two little small fish. And he said to them, bring them here to me. These people are going to need to eat. You give them something. All we have are five loaves and two little fish. Bring it to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Other passages tell us the grass is green because we know, I think it was John tells us, it's Passover. So at this point, we know it's late March, early April. That'll become important in a moment. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the green grass and taking, so they're all supposed to sit down. In fact, the other gospels tell us they're sitting in groups of 50 or 100. 50 or 100. Get in, group, get in groups of 50. Pair off. And I need you to sit down. Well, don't, you're not standing anymore. What's going to happen, it's going to come to you. Don't you come up here. The tendency is when food's served and you have massive crowds, everybody wants to keep pushing. No, no, no. You're going to sit down for this. You, you sit down and stay seated. We're coming to you. Verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Three of the gospels say that he said a blessing. One says that he gave thanks. So put it all together. I've read multiple times. I didn't type it out. But the Jews had a very typical blessing in which they acknowledge the Lord is the one Lord in which they acknowledge that he's the king. In other words, he's the one who gives all blessings. So as they would eat, every time Jesus, whether the Last Supper, anything like that, the feeding of the 4,000 is going to come up. Every time Jesus does, does the same thing. He takes the food, he says this blessing, but he's also giving thanks. So no doubt he's acknowledging the Father is the giver of the food. He's giving thanks for that, but also he's putting a blessing on it himself. Verse 19 continues. Then he broke the loaves. He broke the loaves, watch the order, and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples... Gave them to the crowd. Well, how'd that work? They all ate. Oh, all. Sound like a pretty good-sized crowd. They all ate and were satisfied. I read where, I think it was R.T. France. I don't know that for sure. I think he said that the word satisfied means not just having enough to eat, more than enough to eat. It could probably be loosely translated, they were stuffed. They all ate, so it works. This verse 20 proves this is a real physical miracle. They all ate and were satisfied, stuffed, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. So that tells me there's leftover enough for the Lord and his disciples. 12 baskets full of the leftovers, these five loaves and two fish. And again, here's our number. 
And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Some have tried to say this was 5,000 males who were like an army going to go out and get Jesus to start a revolution. And there were no women and children. No, this means in addition to. So the women and children would be besides the 5,000 men. And that's where some have tried to guess. How many people are we talking about here? I think it's easily safe to say 10,000 to 20. Some have even offered 25,000 people fed on this day. What an astounding miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Would you notice with me, number one, we're going to look at three things this morning. And I'm probably going to spend a little longer on 13. I hope I don't regret doing this. Because it's not the key, I don't think, but maybe it's just where we're at. I'm going to spend a little time on verse 13. Write this down. Jesus calls for a time of retreat. Jesus calls for a time of retreat. Guys, I want to propose to you this morning, verse 13, there are several dynamics at play. That's why I gave the backstory a while ago. Look at verse 13 again. This is key. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He hears something. His response is to withdraw by himself, to start getting alone. Well, guys, you hopefully, by reading the Bible enough, you already know to look and say, hold on, what is this? We need to go backward. You don't have to go really far to find out what this is. Verse 12, his disciples, this is John the Baptist's disciples, after Herod has his head cut off and presents the head to Herodias' daughter to take to Herodias as a trophy, his, John the Baptist's disciples, came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Here's the first thing. What is this? Jesus hears this. Here comes John's disciples. They've killed our master. They've killed your forerunner. They've killed your cousin. They've killed the one you love. Listen, here's the first piece of information. Jesus feels loss. He's just lost someone. What's his reaction? Retreat. His reaction, he's lost someone, withdraw, get alone. That's what, that tells me something. There's something there for us to learn. Come to it in a moment. The second dynamic, don't forget this. Go back. It's not on the screen. Look back at verse 1 and 2. Let your eyes go back to verse 1 and 2. At that time, so how did John die? We're not going to read the whole text again. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, the bad guy, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. Remember last week? Herod has this guilty conscience because he's murdered John the Baptist. When he hears about Jesus, his immediate reaction is of his guilty conscience. This man is the guy that I put to death. Verse 2, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. No, 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 it's the fame of Jesus. It's John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. He's haunted by this, but the key is rather than giving into his guilty conscience and going and finding the person that he thinks is John the Baptist who he illegally and wrongfully executed and murdered, he doubles down and now he wants to execute Jesus. Go back to verse 13. When he heard this, he's lost John, John's dead. Herod thinks he's John, come back to life, and we're going to find out that Herod's intention is to now kill Jesus. What's his reaction? To withdraw. Now, with that in mind, the only time I think I'm going to ask you to flip today, go to Mark. This is his, his version of this, but we're studying Matthew. Go to Mark right quick, chapter 6. Flip over there. Just want you to see three verses. Mark 6. 
notice verse 30. I told you there are like four dynamics at play. John is lost. John is gone. Herod thinks Jesus is John, and Herod's out to kill Jesus. Verse 30, remember I said the apostles had been sent? It's all converging apparently right around the same time, back in Capernaum. The apostles returned, so Mark 6.30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now you see that on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, go back to verse 12, not on the screen. You say, what does this mean? What are they out doing? Verse 12 of Mark 6 says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That's their message. They're going to come back in verse 30. We went out and we preached the message of repentance. But verse 13, and they, they, the disciples, the 12, going out in groups of two, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So now we're back to verse 30. Here come the disciples back. They've just been involved in all this. Successful powerful ministry. Watch verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus, told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away. Oh, that sounds like Matthew chapter 14. He says to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while, for many were coming and going. And they had no leisure to eat. Did you notice those two words? Come rest for a while. You guys haven't even had any leisure time. You have had not even enough leisure to really sit down and have a good meal. Why? They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Why? Because people were coming and going. These guys now have power. And here they're coming back. So here's the scenario. Just lost John. Herod's out to kill him. And the disciples are returned. They're excited from successful ministry, but they're exhausted. And the Lord says, you need to get away, and I need to get away. Guys, let's get away. Let's go away from the crowds. By going from here over to the other side, two things happen. The goal was go to where there were not a lot of people. And also by leaving this side of the Jordan, this side of the Sea of Galilee, and going over to the west, they are now out of Herod's jurisdiction. They're out of Herod's jurisdiction. They're out of Galilee, and they're over into this other section under someone's authority named Philip. So we're going to go, go to a desolate place, and we're getting away from Philip's jurisdiction. Let me throw one more thing at you. One more. I told you there's four dynamics. The people, back to Matthew 14, the people who really, really know the book of Matthew and who've already gone ahead of us and studied, here's what they're telling us. If we would pan our view back and take the long view of the book, here's what's happening. This is the last Passover before Jesus will die the next March, April. So this is the last Passover that's happening. And so what we're going to find moving forward, you may not sense it, but it's been very public for like a year, year and a half. And now the last year of his life, Jesus is still going to show up in public, but he's more he's going to spend much more time in private investing in his disciples because You guys are going to be starting the church. You're going to be the foundation through me, through my death on the cross. He has to tell them what's coming, and he has to start training them. He's going to be pouring more discipleship, more tutoring, more personal time and training into his disciples. Do you get the four dynamics? Here it is again. Just lost John. Herod's out to kill Jesus. The disciples have come back from a successful ministry, but they're exhausted. So all of that means need to go to a a desolated place. And oh, by the way, I'm going to start spending more time with you guys over the next year. You just don't know it, but I'm going to be pouring into you privately. We're going to be away from the crowds a lot more often. So that tells me there are several 
lessons to be learned from verse 13. Can I throw them at you quickly? You ready? Lesson number one. For verse 13 to say, when Jesus heard this, we know the immediate thing is verse 12. He hears about John. That tells me Jesus had great affection for John the Baptist. Jesus has great affection for John the Baptist. And now that he's dead, notice what Jesus' reaction is to withdraw for a time of retreat. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. If God were to live as a man, how would he live? We don't need to ask that question. We know how he would live. Jesus is God living as a man, God and man. He hears about someone that he loves has died. He's lost. Lots of people died, but this person was especially significant to the Lord, and his reaction, his reaction, withdraw. Need to withdraw. That tells me he's wanting to process this. As a man, he's wanting to process. But he's God. His reaction is withdraw, process. Verse 23 tells me he wants to pray. Got to work through this as a man. Second dynamic that we learn, second lesson out of verse 13 is this. Jesus' withdrawing is not due to fear of Herod. It's not a situation where, boy, John the Baptist was bold and courageous and he told it like it is. Now, he had to die for it. And Jesus, knowing that John died, he's scared of Herod. No, no, no. Hear me well. Jesus knows the Father's plan. He knows it's sovereignly laid out. It is already foreordained, a timetable. This is important. Jesus knows when he will die. He knows exactly where he will die. And he knows how he will die. And it is not at the hands of Herod. He and Herod are going to have two meetings, one one year later, and the next time these two will have a face-to-face meeting will be at the great white throne judgment. And that's the only two meetings they're going to have. So Christ is not running from Herod. Oh, I'm scared of Herod. He's avoiding unnecessary confrontation. Let's just go over here. We're going to keep the Father's timetable intact. Well, I could, I could really dive in right there. I'm not going to do it. Just because we know that certain things are going to happen, we know they're going to happen, doesn't mean that we relax and do nothing. People are going to get saved. Well, how does that happen? Doesn't mean we do nothing. We're like, oh, some people are going to get saved. So let's obey the Lord knowing that some will get saved. Jesus knows I die in Jerusalem, not in Galilee. I die by crucifixion. I don't die at that man's hand, that man's power, his jurisdiction. I die in another direction and under another person's human authority, but ultimately under God's sovereign timetable. But now let me draw it to a conclusion. The other lesson that I think verse 13 teaches us, if we want to draw it all together, write this down. I want you to go home and chew on this note. Times of great personal loss. Times of unusual fatigue. That would be the disciples. That would be the Lord. The Lord has great personal loss, times of great personal loss, unusual fatigue, and times of extra special spiritual investment are legitimate reasons for us to abandon and withdraw from our normal routine for a period of time. I want to challenge you. We could literally stop and make that the message today and just... Dig in on verse 13. I want to challenge you to consider that. Is that an accurate conclusion from what we now know, putting all the text together? Hear it again. 
Times of great personal loss. You know, there's some people listening to me right now. Great personal loss can be a, a loved one dying. It could be losing that person somehow in your life. It could be a great hope that you've had. It could be the death of a dream, the loss of a business, something you've poured yourself into, and it is now ripped away. Now, hear me. I think a lesson. This is legitimate. Times of great personal loss, just unusual fatigue. Just been serving and serving and serving and working and working. Unusual fatigue. And the Lord's going to invest in his disciples. Time for special extra spiritual investment. Yeah, those are legitimate reasons. Pull away. Get alone. And spend some extra time with the Lord out of the normal routine. Most of you know, so I lived this this week. Most of you know that this week was uh, a tough week for our family. Um, known it was coming. Uh, dealt with it by ignoring it in my mind. But my son signed up for the Marines. We've known it for months. And the days were counting and counting. Monday, uh, he left for the Marine Corps. He's in quarantine for two or three weeks. Then he goes to boot camp for 13 weeks. And right now, because of COVID, it looks like we're not going to probably get to attend that. He probably will not be able to come home. Well, he will not be able to come home. And then he'll go do another 30-day assignment. And so if we're not allowed to go see the graduation, we're looking at probably June at the first of seeing him again. And what you didn't know last Sunday, if you were here, about 7.30 last Sunday, and it was hitting me. It hit me every now and then. But last Sunday morning, I just woke up, tried to do my normal routine, and it was just not happening. So I know my routine. Let's just say about 7.30, I'm normally sitting in my chair doing my next-to-last runover of these notes, and I just had to get up and walk around. And I was seriously doubting. I'm thinking, I might have to call somebody. I cannot focus. I can't think. I am, I'm out of sorts here. What's going on? This is our last, and the hours are counting down, and it's so valuable. And some of you have lived it, and some of you hadn't. And honestly, probably until you've lived it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But it's just like, it, it's tough. Monday, he wanted to go to IHOP. So we got up and we, he, with his girlfriend, Kendra, the four of us, we went to IHOP. He likes pancakes, omelets, and all that good stuff. It's close to the recruiter. We had that, stalled as long as we could. Finally, we went over there about 9.40. We had to be there by 10. We sat in the car for a little bit. Then we go inside to the recruiter, and we spend about 30 minutes with him. And then we come outside, just right outside the little glass door. And then another young man and his family went inside, and he got the same spiel as us. And this was our time to say goodbye. And we, said our, we had our hugs and we cried and we said our goodbyes for about 30 minutes right there. And then we went and got in the car and he went back in and he and the other young man got their last threats. I mean, their last uh, debriefing from the, the Marine Corps recruiter for about another 30 minutes. And we're just sitting there in the car and there's just not a lot of talking going on. And the only reason we're hanging around another 30, 40 minutes is just to see him walk out one last time. And he walked out one last time and there's the recruiter and they headed off up to Charlotte and they drove away and... This wasn't, wasn't fun. Eric had already taken the day off and went home. Uh, and Deanna was at home. And just knowing me, I'm, I've lost my morning. I've got I to hit certain marks. i got the exchange coming on Wednesday. I just need to hit certain things. I've lost the morning. I need to go focus, right? I need to go work. I'm trying to sit at my desk. We've got this new family photo. It's on this little block wood thing. There it sits. I didn't realize till Tuesday, I've got to get that thing off my desk because he's sitting there staring. It's real. I'm, I cannot focus. Finally, I sat that over on the conference table, turned it around, and then I started getting more done after lunch on Tuesday. Monday? I got here about 12, 15. I was trying. This wasn't happening. 
Jeff Gilreath popped in my office about three, and we're stood there, and he was talking for about 15 minutes, and I hear this knock at the door, and it's Deanna on the side door. I look out there, and there's Erica in the car, and it's just a tough morning, tough day, and she says, me and Erica's going to go pick up Kendra, and we're heading to Greenville. We're going to the at-home store, look for a picture to go above the, above the mantle. Do you want to go? Translation, totally fabricated reason to go do something. That's all that was. <laughs> That's all that was. Do you want to go? And there was Jeff, and he and I were talking, and I'm knowing what's coming. I'm already lost the morning. It's now 3.15. Nothing's happening. And I'm like, no, I can't go. I can't afford it. And I don't know why. She stood for just a second. Maybe he's talking to Jeff. No sooner did that get out of my mouth, I'm telling you, I started thinking, now, hold on. Is it possible? Long story short, I knew that I could take my Bible and my exchange notes that I had, and I could take that and read it while they're in the at-home store. And so before she left, I said, oh, oh, hold on, hold on. I'm going to go. Now, they probably would have had a better time just having it as a girl's outing. But I'm just going to tell you, this is me. This passage this week, I'm going to tell you what it meant for me. I needed to be with those three girls. I needed to be with my wife, and I needed to be with my daughter. I needed to be with my son's mother and my son's sister and my son's girlfriend. I need to be with all three of them. And so while they were in the at-home store for an hour and a half, I was trying to read and get a little something done. And then we went to Wild Wing in honor of Jonathan. <laughs> and it was healing. It was healing. Could I afford it? Oh, I couldn't afford it. It backed me up. Thursday night was late. It would have been worse had I not done that. I'm, I'm almost done with this point. I want you to hear what I'm saying here. For the last two or three years, Deanna has done something where she's gone on a personal retreat Two nights, three nights, so like two and a half, three days, and it's just a spiritual time. She tries to spend extra time with the Lord, downtime, she apparently drinks lots of coffee, finds some VRBO up near Lake Junaluska, and she just gets away all by herself, and when she comes back, she has a renewed energy and a renewed focus. Sometimes the Lord calls us to a retreat. So don't you, I'm not putting a guilt trip on anybody. Please hear me. Right now, we don't have anything scheduled. Our ladies just finished one in November. But listen to me. In the future, if we're able to offer retreats that fit you, you may not be able to go. You literally may be able to look and say, I can't afford it. I literally can't afford it. But if you're like me on Monday afternoon and it's a matter I can't afford it, it might be you can't afford not to do this. You might just need to say, I need to set aside the money. I'm going to have to block out the time. I need, to, I need to go be with that group of guys. I need to be with those ladies. I got to go be with that, that group of people. Sometimes that's what we need to do. When we have great personal... There are folks listening to me right now, just this week. Your son didn't go to the Marine Corps. Or your daughter. And no one died physically. There are people listening to me. They're all across the country. And they feel like they have this huge loss. Then maybe you need to pull back and spend some time with the Lord and say, Lord, help me refocus on you and get that investment extra time spiritually. I've heard people brag about not taking time off. I want you to listen. There is no glory in not taking time off. The staff here, the five of us that are full-time, we all get the same amount of time off. And I tell them, don't finish the year with vacation days. They don't roll over. Use them. Use them. I want you to use them. I can't make them say when or where, but they know if they don't use them, like, hey, you need to use them. Number two, quickly. This one's quick. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus is full of compassion. 
sang about it in a song a while ago. Jesus is absolutely full of compassion. Let's get a running start at this again. Would you back up to verse 13? Let's hit 14. We'll not linger here long. Watch it. Now, when Jesus heard this, John has died. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Did you get it? They're going to a desolate place. That's the plan. We're going on vacation, guys. This go part is just going to be you guys and me. We're taking some downtime. Yeah. <laughs> when he went ashore on the other side, they get near Bethsaida, apparently just outside a little town over there. It's a lot less populated on that side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. We now know that it's probably 15, 20, 25,000 people. And it's growing and swelling to get to that number. Some of the most needy are no doubt being carried or born or hop, hopping along, whatever it may need. But the crowd is swelling from all sides. This is what they see as they come ashore. Verse 14 again, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed them. Would you guys just mentally go with me for a second? What if you had great personal loss? You're emotionally wounded. You're hurting emotionally. That you need to get away. And you're physically, literally physically exhausted. But as you're coming to shore for vacation, there's 25,000 people that can't wait for you to get to shore because, come serve us! What are you thinking? You're feeling depleted. You see that. I'm going to tell you, we're human beings. You're going to feel overwhelmed. We can all admit that. If we're honest, we're frustrated. What are they doing here? Apparently somebody knew that. Who told them? What are they? Do they not know why we're here? Frustration. Irritation. Not Jesus. Jesus is absolutely full of compassion. This word compassion in verse 14 is a strong word. I think it was weird, but he must have got his concordance out and just looked up the Greek word behind the word compassion, found the number, and went and looked at other places that it's used. Listen to where this word is used by Jesus. Listen. In chapter 18, he's going to use it for a king who has a servant who owes him. We'll get there eventually. Literally, listen. Tens and tens of millions of dollars this servant owes this king. And the king wants paid, but the servant, here's the problem. He doesn't have the tens and tens of millions. In fact, he has nothing. He has nothing. This bankrupt servant falls down before this king and starts begging for time to pay it off. Please just give me time to pay it off. Don't have me killed. Don't throw him into prison. He had compassion. The same word is used of this person we call the good Samaritan. So this man is beaten, I mean like literally wounded, apparently laying on the side of the road in a dangerous area. The average people come by and they think it's very suspicious, though he does really look really hurt. They keep on going. The good Samaritan saw the Jewish person, these are enemies by the way, he sees the Jewish person wounded and he has compassion. The prodigal son goes away. The father of the prodigal son sees him after some period of time in his riotous, wasteful living. The son asks for his inheritance. Take dad's money. He goes and lives sinfully and wastes his dad's money. Comes back bankrupt, wounded, depleted. He's hoping dad will at least let him just come be a servant and start being one of the day laborers. The dad sees the son in the distance coming back home after being so wayward and he had compassion. 
That's what Jesus said. Watch. Compassion moves people to action. The king sees this servant who owes him tens of millions of dollars. He has compassion. So much so he's moved to action. action. He says, I forgive you of all of it. I forgive you the whole debt. The good Samaritan has compassion. And he tends to the man and tends to him his wounds and gets him the medical help, gets him food, puts him up in the hotel, spends his own money to take care of him. It moved him to action. The father doesn't just see the son coming and think, I'm going to accept him when he gets here and apologize. He runs to him and embrace the poor boy's trying to get his apology out. And the father's like, I don't need to hear that. He's just glad you're home. It moved him to compassion. This is a strong word. If you're taking notes, write these down. The word compassion here means that these crowds, as Jesus is coming ashore, very different from us, Jesus is so affected, it's so strong in his feelings that literally feelings of pity and sympathy are being felt in his stomach. So we talk about a broken heart. The Jews actually were more onto it. You, if you'll think about it, where you feel it is in the gut. The Lord literally was moved in his stomach, in the, the intestines. They're like wow, He's feeling pain. Get me to... I think this is what's happening. Who are they? Who told them where'd they come from? Lord just wants to keep on going. Get me ashore. They need me. Get me up there. But Lord, they're the very reason we're trying to get away. Get me up there. They need me. These are people beat down by sin. They're beat down by sickness. They're beat down by pain. Another gospel says he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, like somebody's been fleecing them. They're all cut up and bleeding. They have no protection. Get me to them. I need the help. They need me. I'm going to read the simplest sentence the other day in one of my moments this week. This simple sentence, the Lord just said, hey, Jeff, that's true. I see you. Jesus really does care. Somebody right now, you're hurt. You are hurting. You're lonely. You're in sorrow. You may be hungry. The Lord sees that. And the Lord, everybody, remember this. Oh, if we could remember this. He really cares. And he has the power to do something about it. I read that, and all I think is, Jeff, you are not like Jesus. You need, oh, to be like Christ. I finished this point with this quote from Barclay. If you want to write the second part, I'll give it to you first. You'll see it second. Watch. This is convicting. Barclay writes, we must never, uh-oh, see if this is ever you. Jesus goes ashore knowing what's going to happen. He ends up dealing with them. He teaches them, heals them, spends time with them, hours and hours and hours, giving, giving, giving. Barclay writes, we must never deal with people with one eye on the clock. As if we were anxious to be rid of them as soon as we decently could be. Oh, you don't say. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Inwardly thinking, are you done? I'm tired. Can't do that. He continues, write this down. He says, Jesus never found any man a nuisance even when his whole being was crying out for rest and quiet. Jesus is exhausted. Jesus is hurting. And his body's crying out. I need rest. The body's saying, I need rest. I need quiet. Their vacation got interrupted. Now let me qualify that. Not everybody's in, 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 vacation needs to be interrupted by everybody's interpretation of what they think is an emergency. Jesus is the only one who could do what he did for this crowd. 
But sometimes the Lord does interrupt our rest. Number three. So let's quickly look to verses 15 to 21. Mainly focusing on 15 to 19. Jesus provides what we cannot. And here's the point, I guess, of the message. I've spent a long time on 13, a little bit of time on 14. So let's spend some time on 15 to 19. You ready? Here's our lesson. Jesus provides what we cannot. Go back to verse 15. Now, when it was evening, again, we don't know, late afternoon. And what we don't know is what time of the morning did this all start? How long had they been serving? All we know is this. It was evening. The disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Can I give you my translation of that? I can't guarantee this, but I think this is what's happening. I think what they're really saying is, uh, Lord, can we wrap it up? <laughs> We're really tired. This is supposed to be our vacation. Remember, this is, our desolate place is not so desolate. Send them out of here so we can have our desolate place. Send, Lord, they're going to need some food. Watch. They need some food. These people are going to need to eat. So send them away. They need to go get their food. So here's what's happening. The disciples have identified an actual need. It is a real need. These people are going to need food. The problem is... They don't want to help supply the need because they're ready for a break. They're tired. Watch. They've identified a need correctly, but what they don't understand, this is so important, is that God, not always, but often, uses His people to meet people's needs. So they've identified a need. They're going to need food, and the Lord says, then you give them something to eat. They've identified the need, but they don't understand how God uses people, his people, to meet people's need. And so I'm thinking about that this week, and I'm wondering this. I'm, I'm going to keep my tone low, contemplative, right? I wonder how many Christians have thought the following thoughts. Boy, I sure would like to see America repent and return. Or turn to God, not return. The Americans, the average American in our country right now does not need to return to God. They need to turn to God in repentance. How many Christians have ever thought this? We just need to see some folks get saved. We need to see folks get saved. We want to see people get saved. How many Christians have ever thought this? I just want to go to a friendly church. I just want to go to a friendly church. So if I ever invite someone, I know they're going to be treated with hospitality. I, want to, I just want a friendly church. How many people have ever thought this? Christians. I want to go to a church that experiences God encounters. You know you can go to some churches and it's like there's no God encounter. I want to go to a church even if it's not what I want to hear. I want to know that the Lord spoke to me for what I needed that day. If I needed encouraged, if I needed rebuked, if I needed instructed, whatever it is. If I needed spark to worship. I just want to know that, that I had a God encounter every, every time I go. That's the kind of church I want to attend. Well, how many Christians have thought the following? I want to go to a church as a good children's program. I want to go to a church that has a good youth program. I want to go to a church that has a good, solid women's ministry and a good, solid men's ministry. Here's what I want. I want the two billion people who are unreached with the gospel, I want them to hear the gospel of Jesus. And if they reject it, that's on them. But let's, they, they need to at least hear the gospel. I want, I want, I think this, I wish that. I wonder if the Lord in our text this morning is in that still small voice saying, then you give it to them. You do it. What? Lord, they need some food. You give them food. 
You give it to them. Lord, we need America to repent. Then who are you talking to? No, 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 no. Who are you talking to about Jesus? Who are you talking to about their sin? Stop getting caught up in this, as Chip Ingram says, less heat, more light. Start talking about the Lord. What are you doing? Well, somebody needs to talk to them. We need to see souls saved. I think the Lord will say, what are you doing to win them? I want to go to a friendly church. I think the Lord will say, what are you doing to make it a friendly? What are you doing? I want a church that has God encounters. What are you doing to invite the Lord to encounter us each time we meet? Are you praying for that? I want, a, I want a really solid, I want a church that has a good children's ministry. Then you do it. You do it. How about a good youth group? Could you imagine a parent thinking, a Christian parent, I want to go to church as a good youth group, but they don't send their kids and take their kids when the youth are meeting. Could you imagine that? If that's what you want, you do it. I want a good women's ministry. Then you do it. Men's ministry, then do it. Take the gospel. I wonder how long before a person from Graceview says, I've been called to go, would y'all pray for me? I'm supposed to go take the gospel where it's not been before. Really? Look at verse 17. I'm sorry, the end of uh, yeah, verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something. To eat. Watch 17. Here we go. Verse 17. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Your next note, I think, is important. And this is going to lead into, I think, perhaps the first or second most important part of today's message. When we hear God's call, hey, you do it. I think there are two, really three. The second one has two answers. There are two or three wrong reactions that we've got to guard against when we hear the call of the Lord. Then you do it. You give them some food. Wrong reaction number one, if you want to write this down. When we hear the call of God, some people's attempt is to do the will of God in their own strength, in their own power, and it always fails. That fails. We know from Mark chapter 6, verse number 37... The disciples heard Jesus say, then you give them something to eat. Their immediate reaction is, so are we supposed to go buy food? And they conclude, one of them says, it would take 200 denarii. Let me translate that amount of money. Probably in today's United States, that would equate to like, well, Lord, that would take like 15, 20, $25,000 to feed a group of people. And that wouldn't even feed them all. That would give each one of them just a little. We don't have that. Did you catch it? A human answer, a natural way of fulfilling the will of God. Then you feed them. It would take twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars. We don't have it. That's the wrong way I want you to do it. I don't want you to do it of yourselves naturally. If you're taking notes, write down the second wrong reaction. It's the one I want to spend a moment on. Most people, so some people attempt to do the will of God in the power of the flesh. Most people respond to God's call with feelings of either indifference or inadequacy. Indifference is back verse 15. Here's indifference. It was evening and the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They're going to be hungry. They need food and they need to do it for themselves. That's indifference. A lot of Christians hear the call of God and the reaction. Some is, Oh, I'm going to obey God in the power of the flesh. Some it's like, 
I'm just not going to do it. They're indifferent to the call of God. But I think verse 17 shows us the other wrong reaction, and it's the feeling of inadequacy. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, boys, I want you to feed them. You do it. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Lord, we've looked. We found a little boy. We've got five loaves. (laughs) This isn't going to do it. We're inadequate. Can I translate that? Lord, we don't have enough food to feed the 13 of us. We didn't get to do our store run. Remember how we were going to hit the shore? Some of us are going to set up. We're going to camp out a little while. You're going to send a couple of us over to get some food. I'm reading between the lines. We're going to go hit Publix, and then we're going to come back. And we're going to, we haven't even had a chance to do that. We don't have enough to feed ourselves, much less 20, 25,000 people. We're inadequate. Some of you have picked this up if you're perceptive. And my wife has lived it back when we were dating, but even before that. So here's a confession about me. I'm sorry, this is not a bragging thing. This is a confession of sin. All through my life, I've had times where I have battled feelings of inferiority and inadequacy. I've really battled it. And some may say, you don't act like that on a Sunday morning. It's been a real battle for me. When I was a kid, my dad had a construction company. My brother was operating heavy equipment, like operating it for my dad, probably on contract jobs and not hourly jobs. But by the time he was 10, 10 years old, the story is told when he was eight, one guy ran and flagged down my dad yelling at him that his bulldozer was running away. And he's like, no, that's Russell. Couldn't see him. My brother got like second or third when he was 16 years old in a regional contest of heavy equipment running a particular backhoe. He got third place in the Charlotte region, southeast United States, because the only reason he didn't win the thing is because volleyball got stuck in the tooth of the backhoe. And he got deducted points, or he would have won the whole thing. My dad tried over and over to get me. He tried. I remember one time in particular, downtown Asheville, we were on this little, you know, residential lot. It was Apparently going to have a house built there. And it was just the same. There's a, there's a dump truck. Everybody's over there eating lunch. And my dad's like, right there's a pile of dirt. Just go load it on the truck. Can't hurt anything. I was always so scared I'm going to damage something. I remember loading that truck, but I just didn't like it. And so as a result of that, I always ran the rock drill or the jackhammer or my favorite, the shovel and the mattock. Because I'm not going to tear stuff up. Don't, give, don't put me on a backhoe around pipes and wires and stuff. I, I don't want to break anything. Russell's good at all of that. I go to Bible college. I'll guarantee you, if you were there and if you were to survey our little small Bible college, probably 250 people there, you'd probably look and say, yeah, that one fellow over there, he don't say squat. God can't use him. God's never going to use that guy. At age 25, I start teaching at the Christian school over here. I'll just tell you straight up. Deanna belonged there. I didn't. They are better than me. They're all better. They're they're like real teachers. Good thing he has me teaching Bible. I'm not a real teacher. They're so much ahead of me. My most terrifying time each year was having to teach a devotion to the room full of teachers. I'd much rather teach, teach and preach to a congregation of people than to stand in there. They're all better than me. And then to be put on pastoral staff... I've never been in a big church. They all have experience of that. They all have talent. They're way ahead of me. Now listen, there could be a touch of humility to that. But it's sinful. It's not a healthy 
spirituality. It's not a healthy humility. It crippled me from doing the will of God. If you're taking notes, I'm going somewhere, somewhere, write this down. The Lord says, then you give them something, but all we have is five loaves and two fish. We're inadequate here. Yeah, write this down. God often calls for more than we have to give. He often calls for more than we have to give. But when he does, we must let those feelings of inadequacy Realize it. You are inadequate, and I am inadequate, but instead of letting it cripple us, we've got to let those feelings of inadequacy drive us to bring, like verse 18 says, bring it here. Bring our small ability to the Lord for His blessing, for His power, so that He can use it. And then go serve the Lord in obedience, trusting that He's going to do something with our little nothing ability. That's how God works. Verse 18, look at it with your eyes after you write the note. He he says... They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. He said to them, bring them here to me. Can I translate what I think that? I think the Lord's saying this. I want you boys to feed them. What have you got? We've researched them. What we got? we got? I got five loaves, two fish. That's not going to. Watch. Since that is all that you have, then I guess you better bring that over here to me. Since that is all you have. That's all you have. Then don't you think you better bring it up? And I wonder if, if any of them had the light bulb like, oh. Oh, you get ready to do something. Oh, I'm glad I came along. You won't bring it over here. Bring it to me. Boys, this is getting ready to happen. It's going down. <laughs> Are you sitting? This is going to be awesome. It's exciting now. But it starts with acknowledging the inadequacy bringing it to the Lord. This question, I want you to go home and contemplate it. It's not on your handout. I want you to hear this. Here it comes. What has God called you to do that is out of your depth? Answer that in your head. What has God called? You say, Jeff, what's yours? Grace View, you should have never hired me. I am the least talented guy in the 84 churches of the Saluda Baptist Association. I promise you. I am so inadequate. Grace View is so far over my head. You know who I felt for this week? Our new administration. They are so far over their head. They're as much over their head as every other president before them and every other one. No one can do that job. No one can do that job. I mean, really do it biblically. No one can do it. One person, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rule and reign in righteousness. He's the only one who can do it. These two, they're over their head. Our prayer should be, Lord, show them that they're over their head. Make them get on their face and beg you and plead, James 1.5. God, I need your wisdom because they're going to screw it up if we don't. Don't leave them to themselves. Nobody's good enough for this job. Jeff Bartlett is over his head right here. You shouldn't be here listening to me. I have nothing to tell you of myself. Well, then, Jeff, don't you think you better bring that over here to me? Hear my question. What part of God's will in your life drives you to desperate supplication? What part of God's will in your life requires faith? What part of God's will in your life demands the power of God? Thursday night, I heard the ladies on my left I later heard the guys on my right. And what you don't realize is between those two things, there was a little bit of time, there was some desperate supplication going on out loud. Thankfully, no one's here. 
Jeff, what do you mean? God, if you don't do something, I'm going to be here to 4 or 5 a.m. Please, God, you've got to open this. This just makes no sense. You've got to feed your people. Please, God. That's what you don't see. You see, you see a Sunday morning sermon. What in your life requires faith, demands the power of God, makes you cry out desperately? If you're sitting there saying, mm, nothing, I can handle everything in my life, then you got two problems, one of two. You're not doing the things that God has called you to do, or you're trying to do them in the power of yourself. Somebody may be listening to this and say, oh, I've been doing this same thing for so many years. It's on autopilot. I know how to do what I do. I have this title and I perform this function. I don't ever have to cry out for God and I don't require faith and I don't need the power of God. I just kind of do my thing over and over and over. You need to fall on your face and say, God, I'm sorry. If you're sitting there saying, I can't even think of anything I'm doing for God, then you have yet to figure out what God's called you to do. He's calling you to do things that are more than you have to offer. He's saying, bring your little bit and I'll make it much. Y'all have heard that song, little is much when God is in it. How many people were here Wednesday night? I thought about this. I'll bet you I could name a couple of names. They sit here and hear the training about how to share a faith. And I wonder how, how many of them sat there and think, I'm not a good talker. I can't do this. But I hope they're all getting it. I'm going to keep writing the answers and I'm going to keep coming. I'm just not a good talker. I'm not adequate to share the gospel. Join the club. Give your, what if you give your little bit and said, God, would you please bless it? I've got nothing. Here's a, I have like next and I've got five loaves and two fish. That's nothing for the. Just see what God will do. Write this note down. We'll get it out of verse number 19. Ministry success always relies on God. Ultimately, ministry success relies on the Lord. So I'm going to come down the home stretch here. I'm going to go quicker. Beg God to multiply the little bit that you have. Would you look again at verse 19? That's where we'll spend the last few minutes. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Watch this. He broke the loaves. This is what the Bible says. He broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. 5,000 males plus women and children. If you're taking notes, I want to offer to you three typical ways that people read Bible miracles. Here's three typical ways. What are we to do when we come up on passages like this where the Bible says that these miraculous things happen? There are three typical responses. Here's number one. Many, many people, and this number's growing, many people just deny miracles altogether. Like, I ain't believing that. <laughs> do you guys know that America, our number's going up. Here's the attitude. They try to read that. <laughs> I don't believe that. Do you believe that happened? No. That's a fairy tale. Fairy tale told four times in four different gospels. I'm not believing that. Watch this second group. They're dangerous. That one there, you know what? We know where you stand. Watch out for this group. Here's our dangerous group. Some people, when they come across the miraculous, they try to salvage a weakened version of Christianity by watering down the miraculous 
by trying to come up with natural explanations. There's a lot of people, that number's growing. And by the way, they pat themselves on the back as though they're really doing a good thing. And I, I read where one is like, God wants us. Now, some implying, you simple folks, you may just take it as it is. But God understands that others of us need to question how these things happen. This group right here irritates me. The first group, at least we know where they stand. This group, though, wants to water down the miraculous, but we want to keep some Christianity. So we're going to explain it in natural terms. Can I offer you guys very quickly? Here's some theories people have literally put in print on what happened here with the 5 to 20, 25,000 people. Here's some. You ready? Yeah, what really happened is Jesus and his disciples had a bunch of food hidden in a cave. And Jesus stood in front of the cave, and the disciples were behind him. They kept feeding food through his robe, and as people came up, he was giving out food. Okay. Here's one. Uh, they found this little boy, and thankfully he was willing to give up his lunch. And so Jesus preached to them about the little boy, and he used that as inspiration to get all the people who were secretly hoarding their food to bring it out and share it with everybody. And once they shared it, there was enough to feed everybody. There's that one. Here's one. What really happened is Jesus gave, it's, it's, this is a precursor to the Lord's Supper. And everyone, what they really got was just a little small morsel, like communion, and it satisfied them all. So you're telling me Jesus got like 20,000 little tiny pieces out of five pieces? That's a miracle. There's a miracle right there. Okay. And then there's always the favorite one. Jesus was so inspiring, everyone forgot they were hungry. Can I just tell you something? Those dumb answers require more faith than just believing what the Bible says. You guys know you're adding to the Scripture when you just sit around like, well, what do you think? I don't know. A cave. Oh, okay, let's go with that. 20, 25, 000. how much food is in that cave for 20? You've lost your mind. Idiot. I'm sorry I didn't say that out loud. Like, number three, here's the third response. Praise the Lord. Some people just read their Bible, take it at face value, and they just believe in the power of God. Can I say this? This isn't bragging. This is truly by God's grace. This is really God's grace. I don't struggle believing the miracles of the Bible. I just don't. Maybe it's because I was reared in a Christian home. I've just accepted it from day one. But I think it's more than that. You say, Jeff, seriously, you read this stuff and it doesn't. No. Why? I know who Jesus is. Things like the virgin birth. You really believe that? But yeah. The virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, feeding 5,000, raising the dead, walking on water that we're going to see soon. Those are not hard to believe. You can take those at face value once you realize three things. Now, hear it first. Here's what you've got to understand. Once you realize God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. He has all power. Number two, Jesus is God. Number three, God's omnipotent. Jesus is God. Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus has already made and created all things from nothing by using only his words. This, not hard at all. Do you really believe he's up there creating this food from just a... Well, yeah. Don't you? Can I encourage you, Grace View? When you read the Word of God, read it as the words of the Almighty. Don't question His power. Just receive it. Let the Scripture, take it literally. Let the Scripture say what it says. So, Jeff, exactly what do you think happened? 
You had time to picture it this week. What do you think happened in verse 19? And I'm nearing the end of our sermon this morning. Yeah, I don't know how it happened. Can I tell you what I do know? Here's what I do know. Jesus took the little they had. Hear me. He gave, I'm not going to preach. He gave thanks even when there was only a little. There was only a little. Well, he still gave thanks. But he blessed it. Here's a practical thing. Go tell them all to sit down. I need them all to sit down. You're going to sit. We're bringing it to you. I alluded to that already. Get in groups of 50. So here's what happened. He blesses the food. He gives thanks for the food. He breaks the bread. After he's told them, get everybody, picture it. Have you ever been to Bon Secours? I went to a NCAA basketball game back in March of 2017. It held around about 18,000 people. We're probably talking about that. Maybe you've been to Atlantis Phillips Arena, packed out. That's probably what we're talking about. Break that up into groups of 50. You're going to need little walkways to go between the groups. Okay, we got that. We understand that. There's the practical part. But how exactly does it happen? I'm going to throw two, oper- two possibilities. Not really sure, but I'm going to throw the following two at you. We'll draw a conclusion, and then we'll be done. Did Jesus, verse 19... He took the five loaves, two fish, looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. Did Jesus break bread for 20,000 people initially and immediately? Was he like the bionic man? Was his hands up there flying? Food flying. Are they like guys with buckets and wheelbarrows coming up to the concrete truck? And he's just flying around 20,000 people, that much food. Are they running back and forth? Because, listen, they're going to have to be used to feed about 1,000 to 1,600 people apiece. There's no waiter in Anderson County who's going to do that many people in a week, much less for one meal. Now, you don't have to do drink orders. don't have to take an order. There's no bill at the end of it. It's just taking the food, the bread, and the fish. Is he flying around, and he gives it to them, and then they go, and they're running right back, and they're sweating. And, I need another load, and off they go. And they've, I've done my 1,200. I've done my 1,500. Can I help you over here? All right, and finally, whew, is that how it happened? Maybe. Or did it happen like this? Does he break the five loaves and breaks them again and breaks them again and gives to the disciples? And then they go one time. And as they go... They give to the groups of 50, and another group of 50, and another group of 50. In my mind, this is not the Bible. I'm reading between the lines. I think it probably happened like this. Rather than Jesus breaking bread for 20,000 people, I think he was close enough to them for them to see him breaking the bread into much more than it originally was, and then giving to them each... Much more than there originally was, but not enough for 20,000 people. So I think there was an initial phase of the, of the miracle. But then the miracle continues as they go on out, kind of like the widow's meal back with Elijah. You remember how she just, she has enough for one more meal. Well, I thought yesterday was the last one. I got, we got enough for breakfast. And so they eat breakfast. And then she goes back, well, looks, we have enough for lunch. And they eat lunch. Apparently we got enough for supper tonight. And then it's all gone. And she does that over and over and over. And I'm wondering if they go to 50. So how much am I allowed to get all you want, apparently? <laughs> get all you come. I'll get to you. Stay seated. We'll get there. Get all you want. Now's the time. I think that's how it went down. 
Either way, here's your last note. However it happened, I know this. Here, hear it first. Please hear it. Jesus multiplied the food. Jesus is the real giver. He's the real supplier. But, this is important, the average person sitting out there receives directly from the disciples. Let me say that again. Jesus is the supplier. He's giving it. They're not doing anything special except delivering it. They're receiving and delivering. Jesus is the supplier. The people are receiving Christ's blessings indirectly because they're receiving Christ's blessings directly from the disciples. All they know is, you're the one that gave me the food. I'm thankful for you. Where are you getting all this? Oh, Christ up there. So he's supplying it to you to get. Isn't that a picture of God's plan? If you're taking notes, let's finish with this one. God's plan is to bestow his blessings on his people so that we're rich and enjoy life and die fat and happy. No. He bestows his blessings on his people so that we literally serve as a conduit of his blessings to other people. I know that's a simple thought, but I think that's our takeaway. Christ gets the glory. He supplies the power. He's the one really doing the miracle. He's the real giver. But as far as people are concerned, they got it from us. And we're constantly pointing them back where we got it from. Would you bow your head just for a moment? Would you bow your head just for a moment? When we obey that version of God's plan, verse 20 teaches that it's always enough. People are satisfied. They have enough and more than enough. They're stuffed. If God's people receive his blessings properly, enjoy. Remember, remember they took up 12 baskets. There's plenty for them to eat too. But they were just giving it away and giving it away. I have to ask this question. Christians, my conclusion this morning is for Christians. If you're lost, you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to talk with us, then do that. Christian, what specific blessings has God bestowed on you that he wants you to pass on to others? Will the Lord put his hand on anything? Father, would you put your hand on something where you want? Or I'm not asking you to force anything on anyone. But Father, if someone is sitting here listening right now online and you want to show them a specific thing that they have been blessed with, that they're supposed to pass along, would you press that upon their heart even now? So I ask you again, Christians, what specific blessings has God given you that he really wants you to pass on to others? And you'll not be the poorer for it. Can I tell you the main one? The main one? If you're a Christian, you have an understanding of the gospel. God has bestowed that great treasure in you to pass on to others. Jeff, I'm inadequate. I'm not a good talker. Me neither. Bring our little bit to the Lord. Maybe it's something else, though. Second question is this. Christians, what calling has God put upon your heart? He told his disciples, you feed them. You give them something to eat. What is the Lord saying to you? Hey, you do this. You do it. 
as the Lord puts those things on our heart, can we be encouraged and instructed from his word? Don't attempt to do it in our own strength. There are some of us hearing this this morning. We've tried to do God's will in our own strength. Don't do that. It's not about running and buying $20,000 worth of food. God wants to do something where he gets the credit. But listen, don't let your inadequacy cripple you. Bring your little bit to the Lord. What's he put his hand upon that you're supposed to do? And you're like, That's, it's over my head. I'm not adequate for that. I'm not equipped. If he's calling and you'll bring it to him, he will supply. And I'd be remiss if I didn't close with this. Don't raise your hand, but is there anyone listening? You've had a recent time of real loss. Something has been removed. Some hope has been taken. Some person, some dream, something tangible, some idea, but it's been taken from you. Or is there anyone listening right now? This is just the the way it is. You're not poor-mouthing. The reality is you're exhausted physically. Is the Lord calling you to take a time apart? Not a a time apart from Him, but a time apart from your normal routine. Is it time to just get along with the Lord or get along with your group, your family, and just like, you know what? We can't afford it, but we can't afford not to do this. We're going to take a couple of days or three days, and we're just, it's time. We need healing. We need strength, and we need investment spiritually. If you're at a point in life where people, everyone around you is a nuisance, then pray. Christians pray, God, give me a heart like Jesus, a heart of compassion, where I literally feel it so strong that it even overcomes my weariness and my desire for a break. Father, as we close this morning, I commit this group to you. Lord, this week was a struggle, and you know that. And I thank you for taking pity and sympathy on me. When this message here just was not happening. And Lord, you did more in just two or three hours on a Thursday night than you had Tuesday to Thursday. Lord, I confess again, if anything good's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. Father, let us hear your call. Let us feel our inadequacy. Lord, let it drive us to plead and beg for your power. And then let us live by faith. Father, if anyone has nothing like that in their life, they've got it all under control, then, Lord, show them your call for their life that draws them out into the depths where only you can supply. Lord, would you strengthen the weak and the tired, the hurting. Father, give us wisdom to know when to pull apart. But, Lord, let us take your message and your provision and give it to a world around us, brothers and sisters in Christ first, but also to the lost, and thereby meet each other's needs. You're the giver, but you use us directly to touch their lives. Would you let us be obedient? We pray it in Christ's name.